This morning in our study, if you have a Bible, I would love you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, and if you need a Bible, simply slip up your hand. The ushers would love to put one in your hand. So that you can follow along with your eyes as well as your ears. We're going to read verses 6 through 9 this morning together. And I'll take uh, the even verse 6, if you would please read verse 7, and then we'll go through verse 6 through 9 that way. Uh, But can I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word? First Peter chapter 5, verse 6 reads, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 7. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Amen. Let's pray. Once again, Lord, we know that this word is alive. It is quick and powerful. And as we uh, place our eyes and our heart upon it this morning, we ask, Lord, in that unique and divine way that only you can do is that you would lift the letters, the words, the ink off the page and cause it to find its place in our heart, both individually and corporately, as your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please be seated. This is the closing chapter of Peter's first letter. Next week, we'll get into the second letter. And what he does in this closing chapter is he exhorts the elders to feed the flocks. He encourages the younger uh, in Christian fellowship to obey. He says to everyone that they're to be sober, watchful, and constant in the faith, and that also they are to resist the cruel adversary, the devil. And so I'd like to draw your attention back now this morning to verse 1, and we'll work our way through the first nine verses of this chapter this morning, and then we'll, we'll close the book next week. But if you could look with me to verse 1, we find that Peter writes, The elders who are among you, I exhort. I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. So we come now to an interesting subject. Uh, First, 
brought to light here in this first verse. And it has to do with the word elders and what constitutes what we call church government. There are predominantly three forms uh, of structure or of government in the church as we know it today. And I'll just spend a brief amount of time on this subject. Uh, The first is what we call congregational rule. And in that form of church government, the congregation, uh, when it comes to decisions about the church, direction for the church, what the church is doing, the congregation votes. And on whichever side of the 51% or 60% or whatever, whichever way that vote goes, that's what they're doing. It's called congregational. Um, Most churches in Europe are congregationally run. Someone once discovered that when they went to Sweden, they saw how predominant the approach to church government there was congregational. A second uh, form or structure of church government has to do with what's called uh, elder run. It is from a Greek word uh, that is pronounced uh, presbyteros. And the denomination Presbyterian uh, was derived from that word, but I'm not saying that all Presbyterian churches are elder run, but the Presbyteros in that form of government, there are a handful of men that are elders and they make the decisions of the direction of the church, the uh, how the church finances go and all of that. And even in our culture today, though I don't agree with it biblically, there are women in some denominations that uh, are placed in this uh, area as elders, if you will, presbyteros. The third form uh, is mentioned also in the letter here is what we call um, bishop or pastor-led. And it comes from uh, the word uh, episkopos, which means overseer. And uh, Peter uses that word, if I could draw your attention to verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you serving as overseers. That is the Greek word episkopos. And Uh, Again, we have a denomination called Episcopalian, but not every Episcopalian church is necessarily uh, governed uh, in the way that is uh, scriptural here about one man, a a pastor, or a bishop. Uh, You might ask the question, then, what does the Bible teach as as regards to uh, the way, or the right way, or what is the... Uh, New Testament way. And the bottom line is that there is not one uh, definitive form of government that is brought to us all throughout the New Testament. Uh, And I agree with and uh, would echo uh, Pastor David Guzik's comment that, that that's by design. Because God in his infinite wisdom knows that in some areas of the world, the need for a a congregation to make decisions about 
its church and where it's going. Little fellowships perhaps in, in some remote area. They don't have a leadership pool. They don't have elders. They don't have a senior uh, necessarily one man to point to. So they as a small group make decisions for the church. Uh, alongside of that, in different vicinities, there may be that need for a group of men, whether it's two or three or five uh, or more, uh, to gather together and, and they comprise the eldership, if you will, and, and make the decisions for uh, the church, for its direction, for its uh, place in the community. So there is not a definitive uh, one way throughout the New Testament that we're told this is uh, the way, this is the best way. I will say that here at Calvary Chapel, we embrace what's called the uh, bishop or pastor model, uh, episkopos, if you will, uh, elder being presbyteros, bishop or overseer or pastor being episcopos, we embrace the, the concept that God calls a, a man to a given community of people to establish the work of Christ and to set into motion the things that God wants to do in that community and that that individual is responsible to hear from the Lord and to know what it is the Lord is wanting to do and seeks to do in that community, in that time, and in that day. Uh, elements of all three of these are uh, noticeable in New Testament church life and capable throughout church history in which we have seen them work and thrive. Where we would like to draw the line, though, is that um, no one approach, no single approach, has the authority or the right to say to the others, you are wrong, and that our way is the only way. And that's where it is important that we uh, here remain uh, open and flexible and and. Uh, with our eyes upon the horizon of the world as we see it, that we welcome those fellowships that have determined, you know, this way or that way is the way in which they will govern their church. Uh, but here in Calvary Chapel, we embrace um, what we've called uh, the Moses model. I had, you know, Moses was called to a people to uh, be used by God to lead them into the direction of a place where God would bless them. Someone once told me, uh, I don't see it in the scripture, when in fact it's not only there in the Old Testament, but in the New as well. A couple of biblical examples of congregational, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, when there was this hesitation of what to do about the Hellenist widows, um, we see that uh, what was suggested or the direction that was given, it said, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. 
In other words, the, the whole body of people that had this concern of what way in which we should handle this as a New Testament church, the direction that was given, it pleased everyone. And so they all said yes and amen. Uh, an example of the um, uh, Presbyteros is in the same book. The, the next chapter says, in chapter 6, verse 2, it says that the 12 summoned the multitude of disciples. And that's where it was actually the focus was what to do about the Hellenistic widows. And so we had this body of, of leaders that reached out to the congregation as a whole and summoned some of the disciples to say, look out among you, find seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom and appoint them to this task. Some examples of um, episkopos or pastor bishop. First Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1, if a man desires a position of a bishop, that's the episkopos, he desires a good work. Uh, Paul writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.11 said, and he himself, meaning Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastor teachers to the church. So, uh, a lot of this is discussed, if you will, if you're ever interested. We have a book in the Resource Center called Calvary Distinctives. If you wonder how we operate here, many of you have been here a long time and, and know, but this was written by uh, the late Chuck Smith and does a great job of explaining those things. So if you desire to, you can pick one up over there. But we find that Peter is now exhorting the uh, presbyteros, the elders. And he is telling them to uh, shepherd, care for the flock of God. Look at verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. There again is the episkopos. Not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. That word shepherd there is an important uh, Greek word, it's poimen, and it, it, it really carries with it the idea of caring. Uh, many of you ladies went through or are going through uh, a book by Philip Keller called A Shepherd's Look. A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And Philip Keller, having been a shepherd in areas in Africa, uh, uses his phenomenal knowledge about how a shepherd cares for sheep and ties that knowledge and that experience to the facts of the Christian faith exercising the truth that Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd. Uh, I've always found that book thrilling to read. I mean, it's one of those things that should be a staple on your shelf. And you go through it, you know, uh, every now and then, every three or five years, you go through it and just 
soak up the truths that are in there. Again, Philip Keller, uh, a shepherd, looks at Psalm 23. But you'll find it interesting to note that in his book, he says that there are uh, three, at least three things that are necessary for sheep to lie down. Now, remember, Jesus referred to uh, his followers. He referred to disciples, those that would follow him in life. He said, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you too are a sheep, right? Okay, so and I'm, I'm all for that. It's like, sign me up. How do I be the bah? And here's three necessity, necessary things for, for sheep to lie down. Number one, they must be filled with good pasture. In other words, they're not looking for food somewhere and they can't find it. The, the food is right there. They can fill up on it. it they can eat it until they're, they're completely satisfied. And we know that Jesus has taught us clearly throughout the New Testament that his word is food for our soul. We will not get full and grow by, by gathering together as much as good as that is. We will not, you know, grow by, by serving, by, you know, where do I sign up to serve? Those are elements of growth. But the way... Every Christian will grow is by the consumption, the meditation, the dedication, the, the desire for the word of God. And as our soul gets filled with that word, that first necessity in the life of a, of a sheep is met. Second necessity, they must be free of distraction or irritants. You see... Uh, Keller talks a lot about how uh, sheep out on pastures, uh, as their wool gets larger and they're just out there, flies and bugs begin to buzz around their head and you know, they, they can get distracted and, and be irritated by these, these things that are all around them. And man, do we not have a plethora of irritants and distractions today? Things that irritate us. Things that distract us. And yet Jesus said, who the Son sets free is free indeed. To find that way in which in the presence of God I can be freed from distractions. I can be freed from irritants. I am filled with the word of God by his Holy Spirit. I'm freed from the distractions. I've set my mind upon that which is above, not which is below. And so the irritants, the things that irritate others in the world, they don't irritate me. They don't distract me. I love this third one is the third necessity in the life of a flock of sheep is that they can see the shepherd. He's present. He's there. And they know that if, if anything is to begin to interrupt or threaten their well-being, that, that 
their shepherd is going to take care of that. And by our silence this morning, I, I determine or per- discern that there may be some here this morning that you're hungry. There are things that distract you and irritate you. And you're trying to press through the, the veil to find how, to, how do I touch the presence of God and may I exhort you and implore to you that Jesus said, if you seek me, you will find me. So are you seeking him? Is he the desire of your heart? Or is he down on the list somewhere down there? Yeah, 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 he's down there. And yet your life is filled with distraction and irritants and your soul is hungry and thirsty. Peter talks about these attributes of leaders that there are three that are supposed to be in uh, the characteristic of a leader's life. And number one, uh, they're to be serving willingly. It shouldn't be something that they're coerced into doing. And I, I love this fellowship. So we have so many quote unquote leaders that just they see a need and they jump in and we're just so blessed in that way. But you know, that's not necessarily the case everywhere. Sometimes uh, in days gone by, I've been within the family of Calvary Chapel for some 30 years, but before that I was uh, known in a different denomination where, you know, you had to put up the thermostat signs and we're growing, you know, but keep getting out there and bring them in and banging the, the, the drum and the signs to make motivate people to do something. No. The motivation can only come from the Spirit of God as a response to the love of God already demonstrated to us. So a leader is to just be serving because they're willing. Secondly, they're to, to lead eagerly. It should be like, you know, wow, do I get to serve today? I you know, hold on, time out. As you look at your roster through the week and you're going, man, I got to do that again this week. I thought I just did it last week. It's like, yeah. Okay, that can happen in the mentality and in the, the flesh heart, right? I remember when years ago, not that I have this down. I mean, every now and then when in, in my own flesh, I'll walk up to something that needs to be done. I've done it before and I'll do it again. And I'll say, Lord, I got to do that again. You know, but eagerly. Did you come to church eagerly this morning. Oh, we get to go to church. Oh, man, it's 8 o'clock. Get in the car. Gotta go. Get the kids. Get the kids. Let's go. Eagerly. I remember, I'll share this years ago, uh, before Sherry and I married, um, my remaining surviving son, David, was like four, four and a half, three and a half, four. 
And I was living up in San Andreas in the apartment at a time, and uh, I was travel over to Jackson to a little church on Water Street called Warehouse Ministries, and that's where God brought Sherry and I together and that to fellowship, and our lives have just been changed since then in such beautiful and dramatic ways. But in in going there, I mean, my life had fallen apart because of drastic things. And I remember walking in the doors there, and they were so welcoming and so willing to let me serve. And it eventually came to a part where I could uh, I could teach children. I could go into a children's classroom and break open the Bible and talk to them about Jesus. And I said, really? And they said, yeah, show up next week, you know. And so I hadn't been there very long. And, of course, we always need help in children's ministry. And we have set some protocols in place here where you need to be at the church for three months or so. We need to get to know you and everything. Well, back then, they didn't necessarily have that in place. It's like, if you were there for three or four weeks, here's the bag. You know, you just run with it. And so, anyway, they were very kind and open in that way to... I wouldn't necessarily do that all over again, but it was just a God thing. And uh, I remember I used to wake my son up at like sunrise and I would fix all the snacks and the crackers and the cheese and everything and put them all on a plate. And, and my, my son wasn't awake very much at sunrise, so I'd bundle him up in the sleeping bag and throw him in the back of my old 53 uh, 63, I don't know, dart swinger. That thing had a bad muffler, and it would just go blah, 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 all the way down the street. And we'd drive from San Andreas to church, you know, and it was like, I get to serve the Lord. I hope that's your perspective. Because that's what the, Lord, the heart of God is calling us to. To serve willingly, to serve eagerly. And as Peter is relating to leaders to serve by example. Uh, the greatest thing that you will impact someone else's life with is not so much your doctrine, although doctrine is important, not so much your assembly, where it is you assemble as Christians. I mean, that may... Uh, I Later today, I'm, I'm going to be overseeing the burial of a of a young man who used to spend time here on our grounds. Uh, he was very troubled. And, and his mom told me in preparing for this that, that he had a, a faith in God, but he didn't have a faith in church. Okay, somewhere along the way, he got hurt by what he experienced in church. And, you know, that happens to people a lot. And so the greatest thing that will impact others in your life is not so much your doctrine, although it's important, not so much where you assemble, although that's important, but your example. My example, your example of how we live out this thing called our Christian faith. And that's what Peter is exhorting the leaders to do. Not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, and not as lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Because then he says in verse 4, I point you to it, he says, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. 
what was indicative of the, the first church is to be indicative of every generation of Christians throughout uh, history until the church is taken up. Uh, we're promised that one day the Lord will descend and, and the dead in Christ shall rise first and then we who are alive and remain uh, will meet him in the air and so shall we ever be with him. The rapture, the church will be taken up. And so until that happens, we are to live in this wonderful expectation of a, of a biblical truth and fact that he is going to return. That's what Peter's writing to uh, his reading audience. When the chief shepherd appears, there was no doubt that he's going to come. And when he comes, in the way in which they were uh, serving him and seeking to follow him, there would be this crown of glory that does not fade away. You know, we're told in Revelation 4.10 that the 24 elders are around the throne and you can have your questions about who those are, but the bottom line is that the crown that they receive, they're casting it back down at the feet of the Lord and saying, worthy, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Our simple service here, when we get there, it's not going to be about us and what we did here. It's going to be about him and what he did here to get us there. Then Peter turns the corner in verse 5 and he begins to speak now not to the elders or those who have been walking with the Lord for, the, for a period of time, but to the youngers. And this isn't necessarily chronologically, but certainly spiritually to the youngers. In verse 5 he says, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so he, he brings to the forefront now to his reading audience the need for those who are younger in the Lord to know what it means to have a submissive heart. To, to know what it means to be willing to let others lead them in the way that they should go. A simple recognition uh, of an elder in their midst. And, you know, today, I mean, you fast forward a couple thousand years, we have a real uh, authority problem in our culture here in the U.S. We have... Uh, a problem with the younger generation wanting to recognize authority, let alone submit to authority. Now, being a part of the generation of the 60s that wanted to, you know, reject all authority and, and find a new way to live, you know, Vietnam was happening and uh, it was a turbulent time in the United States of America. And yet what happened in those days is those that sought to find, uh, they, they rejected the status quo. 
They wanted to find a new way to live. And so for many of them, that became involvement with drugs and alcohol and, and free sex and, and all of that. We're, you know, we don't have to live that way. We'll live this way. Well, you carried that forward uh, a decade or two and uh, syphilis and disease and illness began to rapidly uh, hit that community. And they found out that love wasn't really free. That there was a consequence to living without outside of the parameters that God has placed in his word for the safety of humankind. Peter addresses that here to the younger's be submissive. And it's been there's been times when uh, the authority of one or another has been certainly perverted or uh, abused where someone who was in a position of leadership, particularly in the church, abused that authority, used that authority in a very destructive way, and and how sad that is. But as he goes on, he says, no, that's not just for you younger, but all of you. Every one of you needs to be clothed with humility. Probably nothing new to many of us here this morning. But what's hanging in your closet today? What kind of clothing is there? Can I ask you? There is a statement by uh, Congressman James Alley. You may not recall that name. But he was a congressman during Lincoln's administration. And Lincoln was pushing for the vote to abolish slavery. And he needed a certain amount of votes from from the House and from Congress. And so his his cabinet was pushing against him that if he sought to do this at this point in his second term during during the Civil War, that that the entire nation would rebel and not want. And in this statement, it's interesting. We find this very biblical and and humble man that we have pictures of throughout as we read his history, he said to his cabinet, he said, I am the president of the United States, clothed with immense power, and I expect you to procure those votes. Careful, right? And God used him to do a miraculous thing in our free country. But should we not all be very careful about what we are clothed with and how we see ourselves in terms of our giftings and the strength that we have? What's hanging in your closet today? I think this is so powerfully demonstrated, but through the prophet Isaiah, the verses are up there, Notice Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. So he's saying, I'm up here, you're down here. Up there is where I live and I stay. But he makes one uh, adjustment. 
to that separation of him being high and in the holy place. He says, and with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. Isn't that beautiful? God who is holy says, I I live up here and it's where I'm going to stay, but I will come down and dwell amongst the one who is humble and contrite. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2, Thus saith the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, but all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one I will look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Woohoo! That means the individual, God is up there, but the individual that looks at this and says, this is his word to me. I saw this illustration years ago, and I just every now and then I use it, but it's like, what do you do with this? What is it that this is in your practice? Set it to the side and live your life. Or tremble at it. Open it up and ask him to speak through it. For he will. Very powerful. To me, very powerful. And then he closes and we'll kind of wind down this morning with what I would call various perfect spiritual postures for all. Various perfect spiritual postures for all. First, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. This is what we read earlier. That he may exalt you in due time. And again, the timing of God when he decides to exalt someone who embraces humility. Uh, You know, it's not one of those things where we can endeavor to to be humble and then say, okay, Lord, I'm humble. Can you exalt me now? Can you exalt me now? No, it doesn't work that way. He will exalt the one who embraces humility in due time, in his timing, and in his ways, which are perfect. Secondly, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Know that you are cared for by God. He knows where you live, your address, your phone number, the secrets of your heart, and cares for you enough to die for you. Thirdly, the admonition again to to be sober. And again, Peter throughout this book, he talks about sobriety. It, It is it is a straightforward type of thinking, but it also means to uh, abstain from alcohol that blurs the vision and the thinking. Be sober, be vigilant, uh, constant, if you will, because your adversary, verse 8, the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
And we remember how the Lord himself fought the, the temptations in Matthew's gospel. With each temptation, he said, it is written. And so it is the word of God written upon the tablets of our heart, spoken uh, to our adversary that puts him back in his place. Because he's trying to devour, and lastly, in the power of God, resisting him steadfast in the faith, knowing that he, I'm sorry, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. It's, it's not just a, a thing for me, this that I'm going through. It's for everyone in the world that has said, yes, I am following Christ. So once again, as we close it this morning, are you a leader of any sort? Then feed those who are around you the word of God. Are you a younger of any sort? Then remain submissive in your heart. Are you as a follower of Christ this morning remaining sober, watchful, and constant in the faith? Some of us might reply, well, I'm trying. The Lord knows our heart. Are we seeking God's power and his word to resist that cruel adversary? You can answer those questions as you work through your week ahead. Will you join me as we pray? for the Apostle Peter's clarity in writing to those that were so desperate to know what you would have them to do, what you would have them to be. And we, in the same way this morning, Lord, the church 2,000 years later are desperate to know what you would have us to be what you would have us to do both corporately and individually. So we ask that you bless, Lord, today, that you walk close beside us and find us near to your heart all throughout this week as we breathe your praises, as we worship you, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.